every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And we are really excited today to have a very special guest from the EAC. EAC Chairman Ben Hubland. We are so appreciative of you joining us. Really, we always start out by asking how you got involved in elections in the first place. Uh, I know you've been in this space for a really long time. Yeah, thanks for that. And, and again, like many people, I don't know that, that my journey into election administration was a straight line. I actually started out in campaigns. I somewhat quickly learned wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Uh, I went to law school, you know, sort of explored a lot of different areas of the law. And after law school, I ended up the Missouri Secretary of State's office. Uh, one of the reasons I got there was I had been focusing in law school on ballot initiatives. And and I know ballot initiatives are, are alive and well in Missouri still. They were sort of just really kind of starting to blow up. Uh, I was doing some work on that and then sort of extended my portfolio uh, and just got bit by it. I think for me, it was the right balance. You know, it was making the experience good for Americans. I was at the Missouri Secretary of State's office for about three and a half years and decided that it was time to see what was out there beyond Jefferson City. Um, and ended up in uh, the voting rights nonprofit world. Enjoyed that, I learned a lot, but still there was something missing, you know, and I think it was, it was the impact that you can have in government. So there was an opportunity to join uh, the U.S. Senate Committee on Rules and Administration uh, that has jurisdiction or legislative jurisdiction over both campaign finance and election administration. And so that was really the ability to take, I guess, my whole career and, and combine them in one place. And so I spent about five and a half years at the Rules Committee working on legislation, working on issues related to election administration from that perspective. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I, I was able to leave, I think, with one major accomplishment, which was I felt like I significantly contributed uh, to the $380 million that came out in FY18 for election security. Uh, and then the opportunity to join the Election Assistance Commission as a commissioner. And I was unanimously confirmed by the Senate at the end of the 115th Congress and have been at the EAC now for, for about two years. Uh, and certainly uh, it has been a learning experience. It's been a great experience. You know, in these different roles, I've always sort of had this idea what the EAC could do, how it could contribute to the space. It's, it's fun to finally... Uh, be in a position to try to help shape that. Then I think you're forgetting one of your most prestigious former roles, and that was a, as a poll worker in St. Louis County at some point. I, I think the public needs to know that. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, and actually, I talk about it a lot fondly. When you were in the Secretary of State's office, did you have the opportunity to work with the EAC at all, or were you more in just the litigation world? I did. <laughs> I, I sometimes there are there are certain people at the AC that wish I wouldn't tell this story, but I sometimes joke that that I had hair before the 2008 Eve survey. 
uh, you know, the, the elections division uh, was primarily responsible for that. And actually, to be honest, I didn't have hair before the 2080s. Uh, but certainly the experience then, uh, you know, I tell the story usually to, to say, uh, you know, I, I have experienced, you know, some of those challenges and, you know, I'm committed to uh, making things better. And I think the eaves has come a long way, uh, you know, certainly uh, rolling out the ability to fill out a lot of it online. Uh, a lot of the categories have been uh, enhanced in a way that they're smart to help ensure that people uh, are providing consistent data. Uh, you know, if you say in one place that you don't have same-day registration, now you can't say you had same-day registrations. Uh, so that that's important. Uh, and again, you know, I think we continue to look for ways that we can make it friendlier to the state and locals who fill it out. EVES offers a lot of value, I think, as far as a picture of what election administration looks like in this country, uh, but it's important for us to make it uh, as user-friendly uh, for the state and locals who are filling it out. And I think we need to continue to explore ways that it can give back to those people uh, who are putting the time in. How, how can we collect data that is useful for local election officials, whether that's capturing things that can be useful to go back to legislatures uh, for funding, whether it's capturing things that can help uh, locals implement different changes. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, we have this tool and figuring out, uh, you know, not changing it too much because people don't like that, but figuring out how to make it as efficient and as effective as possible is really important. One thing that I have continually been impressed with the EAC is their accessibility. And what I mean is that the commissioners themselves, well, all four EAC commissioners have been to Missouri. I think they've all been to, been to our office in St. Louis County, as a matter of fact, but especially Tom Hicks, he loves for some reason coming to Missouri. So I, I don't know how the EAC was in that regard years ago when it first started. I, I was not in my role then, but it certainly is now. So I want to say that I appreciate that. Are there any ways you think that through that accessibility, the the EAC can do more to reach out to local election administrators to assist them. What, what else is there that um, ele local election administrators can know from what you guys are out talking about? Absolutely. I think there are so many ways that we can do more. And part of that, I mean, you have to step back. And, and I will say, I believe we as an agency are at a time of transition. This agency was threatened with elimination for over a decade I'll skip the appropriation we just got. I'll come to it in a second. You know, our funding levels, you know, while the agency wasn't eliminated, our funding levels were cut in such a way that it was almost as much as that. It was certainly limiting the capacity to do anything beyond basically our basic statutory requirements. Uh, and even that was a struggle in many ways. Uh, and certainly part of being a federal agency is there are federal compliance requirements that are not simple. <laughs> you know, there are standards that we have to meet as a federal agency, and that takes resources, that costs money. Uh, you know, when I talk about our budget, sometimes with locals, uh, you know, I see their eyes get wide because, and it depends, uh, if I'm talking to a smaller jurisdiction, uh, you know, they go, wow, you know, you had $8 million. <laughs> uh, you know, but then if you talk to, talk to LA County, you know, it was like we got down to 18 people and I think LA County has a thousand FTEs or something, you know. So in the last few years, you know, really in many ways, the foreign interference of 2016 made it 
a lot less attractive politically to talk about eliminating us. And uh, even though we saw our lowest fiscal number in 2019, you know, I think the question is really, how do we get better? How do we move forward? And I think you've seen Congress start to invest in us in that way. For FY20, we got an increase uh, to a little over $11 million. We just got an increase to over uh, $15 million, which again, finally gets us back in line with where we were about a decade ago. Uh, And so again, we're starting to get that momentum. And then to me, uh, the question is, how are we responsive with that? And and I think we were this year in a number of ways. Uh, Obviously, like everybody, COVID sort of sidetracked some of the best laid plans, but we were still able to to do a number of things. Uh, We partnered or worked with CTCL to make their Cyber 101, 201, 301 training uh, available at no cost to to local state and local election officials around the country. That's still available at no cost. I know a lot of people didn't have uh, a ton of extra time in 2020. So that's still available at no cost through uh, May of this year. So anyone listening to this that hasn't taken those trainings, they may want to. You know, when I look at the field of elections, uh, what I see is more is being asked of local election officials than ever before. And even though elections are decentralized, you know, I think there is an important role that the federal government can play, that the EAC can play in providing resources, in sharing best practices. Uh, you know, I know a lot of, uh, from, from the initial, I think, podcast, you know, there was talk about how, uh, you know, you're missing conferences and getting to, to rip off great ideas from your colleagues. Uh, you know, in many ways, you know, our clearinghouse function should be a year-round opportunity to hear the best practices from your colleagues across the country. Uh, and, and while, you know, Missouri law may differ a little than New Mexico's uh, or Oregon's, uh, you know, to be able to see what other people are doing and think about how you can tailor that uh, to your state or, or for us to be able to take on research projects that, that you all don't have the time or, or resources for because you're running elections. Uh, you know, but that starts with uh, a feedback uh, loop that I think we need to improve. We have three advisory boards that are created by the Help America Vote Act, and the standards board has 110 members. It is uh, a state election official and a local election official from every state and territory in the country. Uh, and so we use that advisory board to collect up uh, a list of as many local election officials as we could to try to create more of a communication channel. But we're up to about 4,500 locals that we have email addresses for. We've sent out a couple newsletters this year that have updates on what we're doing, on resources, on communication channels. I think that's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, But we're also, and this will be, this is sort of breaking news, I guess. Um, I don't even know if I should be saying it yet, but we're looking at, or we're in agreement on creating a fourth one of those advisory boards, one that is focused on local leadership and and hearing from you all and the state local leaders uh, about what their members need, what, how can we use the resources we have most effectively and to create that feedback loop of what are the things that you need research done on? What are the things that, that you need more information on? And whether that's uh, combing out across the country, you know, the ability to have that 50 state vantage point and find people that are doing things well and then sharing that more broadly, 
or, or doing original research. I think those are all things that we're open to, uh, but I think it's important that we hear from local election officials about what they need in order to use those dollars most effectively. The EAC has been quiet in the past, but this year was really active in trying to amplify voices and really leveraging having a national presence and getting to work with all of the national organizations so that the word could really get out. Because lots of times, even if we can identify what we need and it's something that voters or the public could help us out with, we don't have the platform for doing that. Has that been a different mindset? It's like advocacy, but in some ways it's just helping spread the message that local election authorities are, are trying to put out there. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that, you know, when I look at 2020 and I think about, uh, you know, what worked and what didn't, and we're going to do some work on lessons learned, as I'm sure a lot of people are, but, you know, what we were able to see this year was how lucky we were that there was this expertise out there that was able to be shared. People from Oregon and Washington uh, and Colorado and Utah that took time to share their lessons learned for better or worse with their colleagues across the country. Uh, I'm sure that made a difference. Uh, I know that it made a difference, uh, but also the way the community was able to come together um, and identify those common challenges. And so, you know, sometimes I think it's hard to have uh, a federal approach on certain issues because the answers are localized. But, you know, we heard consistently from election officials, uh, both in some of the, the hearings and roundtables that we hosted, and obviously in conversations that we had about the concerns of poll worker shortages during the primaries and what that would look like for the general. And, and so we launched National Poll Worker Recruitment Day. Uh, certainly that effort was about raising awareness about the need for poll workers, uh, but we were also able to create this tool at helpamericavote.gov. What it did was, you know, we talked about poll worker recruitment, we talked about helpamericavote.gov on a national platform in uh, a unified way but when you got to helpamericavote.gov, that got people to you all, to local election officials. And I think that ties in with things like what the National Association of Secretaries of State was driving this year with the Trusted Info 2020 project, or trying to get people to state and local election officials for that trusted source information. Uh, but I certainly remember my days at the Missouri Secretary of State's office when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State of our country and we would get angry callers yelling at us about Hillary Clinton. You know, they, for better or worse, you know, we need to have a big civics conversation in this country, clearly. And part of that is, is knowing where to get your trusted source information. And to the degree that we can find ways to use national platforms to reinforce a place, helpamericavote.gov, uh, to go, or uh, we also entered it. One of the newer things that we've done is entered into uh, an interagency agreement with the General Services Administration on vote.gov. Uh, again, vote.gov is real easy to remember. And so if we can use that as, as sort of a phone book, if you will, to drive people to their state and local election officials for that trusted source information, I think that's a real way we can contribute. Speaking of things that the EAC does or contributes to, Ben, uh, the voluntary voting system guidelines is one. And at least in the state of Missouri, we can't purchase or use any voting system that isn't, hasn't gone through that VVSG approval process. If I'm correct, we're, we're still operating under the 2005 VVSG. I think there's been a lot of talk 
and effort toward updating those. Can you give us any update as to where that is? Yeah. You know, the version that we've been hearing about for a while, the VVSG 2.0, you know, I will say there has been a lot of talk about that for a lot longer than I would like there to have been. When uh, Commissioner Palmer and I were going through uh, our confirmation, you know, we both noted that this is one of our top priorities. And one of the things I've said a few times was I very much was under the impression that things were sort of signed and sealed and awaiting delivery once the quorum was restored and arrived to find that not to be the case. And so what I'll say is, you know, hats off to our staff. We have uh, invested a lot of resources in the last year, despite everything that was going on with the pandemic. You know, we put the technical requirements out for public comment. We held a number of hearings on those. We continued pushing forward. Uh, we got some feedback in one of those hearings from manufacturers indicating uh, that they would need even more information to be able to build uh, to that standard. Uh, what we'd heard from our partners at NIST was that that would be uh, at least another year in the making. Uh, and so we hire, we use some of that money to hire uh, a contractor and fast track as much as we could. I know that sounds surprising compared to as long as we've been talking about the VVSG 2.0, but we really have done years worth of work this year. Uh, and I really do think we're getting close to, uh, you know, knock on wood and adoption. Uh, certainly in the last two years, in 2019, uh, I'm also the designated federal officer for the, the Technical Guidelines Development Committee, or TGDC, which is what really kicks off the process uh, that's outlined in HAVA, uh, and it hadn't met in uh, a while. Uh, we had, in 2019, I believe, seven virtual meetings and an in-person meeting, or six virtual meetings and in-person meeting. You know, we pushed through on those requirements, got those done, where they then went to our other advisory boards and to the public comment process. Uh, that public comment process ended in June, uh, and we got, uh, I think, 77 submissions that covered about 1,600 individual issues within the technical requirements. And so, uh, again, our staff and the, the NIST staff, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, have been working through those. And, and again, I think we're, we're closing in on uh, that all be work, being worked through and having a version that will be presented to the commissioners for a vote very shortly. But I think one of the things, you know, one of the real challenges that, that I've seen in, in the last two years is, you know, the lift that is the VVSG 2.0 to go from a 2005 technical standard to a 2020, 2021 technical standard is such a lift. Again, you have, you have standards that were written before the iPhone was invented. And so you think about how far we've come technologically in that time, whether that's security, whether that's accessibility, whether that's usability, there is so much technological advancement in that time. That big of a lift is really a challenge. And as people look to what the next generation of systems might look like or, or talk about innovations like end-to-end -end cryptographic systems, like those things deserve uh, a significant amount of conversation. And when you're doing a 15-year lift, you just can't give all of those the type of conversation they deserve. And so, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about is, you know, how do we avoid this kind of stagnation again? How do we put in place processes where we're doing regular reviews, whether that's cleanups or just, just looking at this, looking at what new technologies are coming, but talking about these things in a way that we don't end up in a situation again, where we're doing this big of a lift at once. And, and I think that we've, we've made a lot of progress in that. 
I'm hopeful that that future conversations about the voluntary voting system guidelines will be much different than those in the past. Because our listeners clamor so much for VVSG information, I do have a follow-up. So you just mentioned stuff like end-to-end cryptographic uh, verification. So somebody who is just running elections out here in Missouri, we're using voting machines. The Secretary of State has approved, you know, if and when we have a new VVSG, are there a couple of things that you could mention that this would mean for new voting equipment? I mean, is there some attribute, some feature that election administrators can say, this next version of guidelines might mean this for voting equipment? Yeah, so I think there's a lot. And again, part of it is simply that technological leap forward. When you're talking about some of these older legacy systems, touch screens <laughs> weren't what they are now. You know, we're looking at a lot of ways, you know, it's both the leap forward as far as technological advancements on security and accessibility. Uh, you know, those are big pieces. Uh, but we're also looking at ways to incorporate things that, uh, you know, part of the draft principles and guidelines talk about, uh, you know, having voting equipment that support um, that support efficient audits. Uh, you know, a lot of people, obviously, uh, post-election audits have been a popular topic uh, these days. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been looking at, uh, you know, whether it's it's trying to implement, you know, something like risk-limiting audits, but, uh, you know, certain jurisdictions I know uh, or certain states don't have equipment that would maybe make that as simple as possible, or, you know, maybe they're limited to doing a ballot polling audit versus a ballot comparison audit. The next generation of equipment uh, will enable people to do the types of audits that their state either requires or that they want to do. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot that we're doing around transparency, around you know security, but but really, I think a lot of it is about is about making that leap forward, finding ways. Uh, you know, again, there's there's a lot in there about being able to use commercial off-the-shelf technology, figuring out ways to make voting systems more affordable, more responsive. Uh, you know, obviously it's always this, uh, this challenge of trying to think about how to say it. Um, the marketplace is one that obviously there's only a few major players in. Uh, you know, I think it's looking at how we can make it friendlier to get more people involved. And this is a, <laughs> I know this is a, this is an in the weeds podcast for people that like to get in the weeds. So the voluntary voting system standards are the guidelines, the standards that voting equipment is built to. The testing and certification manual talks about how vendors, how manufacturers bring a system into the program, how that gets tested at one of our voting system test laboratories. And so there are pieces of that that I think we can also make more responsive uh, and more friendly to other people, uh, other technology companies, other people that specialize in things like um, for example, assistive technology, trying to find ways to allow them to enter into the program or at least part of the program uh, without some of the, the challenges they may have had in the past. And so uh, I know all of that, I didn't condense that down to the elevator pitch that you might have wanted or, or the one to tell, uh, <laughs> tell your funding body uh, about why you need to get new equipment. But again, I think that, that so much of it boils down to, you know, really modernizing uh, the space and voting equipment and providing voters with a better experience. I think the voluntary voting system guidelines are one piece. But but again, stepping back and thinking about 
the role that the EAC can play in this decentralized nature of elections. I mean, to me, the sweet spot for us is when we're focused on good governance, when we're focused on customer service, when we're looking how we add value to the space. And in particular, you know, having that 50 state view, where are the areas of commonality? Even though each state runs elections its own way, even though even jurisdiction to jurisdiction is different, you know, where are those commonalities? And so uh, certainly the voluntary voting system guidelines are one of those. We do a lot of work around accessibility. Obviously everybody's got to comply uh, with the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Most states have poll workers. Uh, every state has mail or absentee ballots. And so identifying those areas, you know, we've had more and more conversations about uh, non-voting election technology. Uh, it was things like e-poll books, election night reporting. Those have become a major part of election administration, but weren't really around or around in the same way when the Help America Vote Act was written. And so while we are a non-regulatory agency, that doesn't mean we can't identify best practices, identify the things that states or jurisdictions are doing, you know, well or right, and, and highlight those for other people. Again, it, it is so clear that the job of being an election official is harder than it's ever been. Uh, you know, that elections are chronically underfunded around the country. And so finding those efficiencies, finding ways, you know, certainly if Congress gives us grant money to put out there, uh, you know, we welcome that and, and would like to do that. But there are resources that are not just money. Uh, you know, again, making people efficient, utilizing the skills uh, of all of the, you know, the nearly 9,000 jurisdictions across the country to, to help rise the tide for everyone. Uh, you know, I think that is an important role that we can play and, and I want us to. I don't know if this podcast will go public by the time the submission deadline is done, but you want to put a plug in for the clearies? Absolutely. Well, and actually, I mean, that's a great tie-in, Eric, I know. So the Clearies or the Clearinghouse Awards, we are, uh, by the Help America Vote Act, we are a federal clearinghouse. Uh, and so for those of you that didn't know where Cleary came from, that's where. <laughs> uh, but those are awards that, that were created to both recognize, you know, innovation and great work that local election officials are doing across the country, uh, but also it's a way that we hold up those best practices you know, everybody uh, who submits or everyone that's nominated for those, uh, you know, whether they win or not, those are good ideas. Those are, that's great work that people are doing around the country. Uh, you know, it may be the type of thing that, that helps you in your daily job, you know, helps your jurisdiction, helps you serve your voters. And so, uh, you know, we always look forward to holding those up. Uh, we added a new category this year around security. Obviously, it's been a hot topic the last four years, if not forever, but in particular, uh, there's been a lot more talk, talk about it. And, and last year, we'd added a new one just for a little bit of fun with the our best original sticker, uh, which has, has been a treat. It's a little bit more lighthearted than we get to be in elections or, you know, too often, particularly this year, I think highlighted challenges of this job, the challenges of this space, you know. Uh, I mean, the work that state and local election officials did around the country this year was just unbelievable. And to at least be able to recognize a little bit of that through the Clearinghouse Awards is, is something that we're honored to do. Certainly, there was a lot more collaboration and communication between all of the levels of government in the election space than there has been in the 2016 election or in past elections. So that is a really positive outcome, I think, that uh, we can hold on to and build off of. But 
you mentioned a lot of the things the EAC is going to be working on in the future. What what personally are you looking forward to in um, this next year or even you know the next four years into the next presidential election? A lot. <laughs> But you know, I think there's I think there's a lot of takeaways from this year. A lot of things we need to work on. Uh, you know, one of the biggest I think is doing more education on this space. Uh, you know, having honest conversations about election administration and both uh, for the American for the public on how they can get information. One of the challenges I think of, uh, you know, I'm a fan of decentralized elections, but I think one of the challenges it brings is getting people that trusted source information. And so, uh, you know, I think we need to continue to invest in that and invest in ways to to educate people. But I think part of that also starts with having honest conversations about what it takes to administer elections, the costs associated with that. You know, uh, I talk about uh, election funding quite a bit, but I think it's important. You know, I think there's this is a podcast, so nobody can see it, but I'm wearing a t-shirt that says election officials count. Um, <laughs> uh, and again, I think the world of, of uh, the election administrators around the country, the professionals that run our elections, and what they overcome, the challenges they overcome with budgets that, that should be much more. And I, uh, you know, I think in some ways there's almost this culture of pride of showing that we can pull off the election despite not being adequately resourced. And, and, and again, I know that, you know, particularly at the local level, uh, it's much more attractive to take a picture in front of a new fire truck than it is, uh, you know, a new, uh, some new voting equipment or, or to talk about, you know, whatever new uh, election administration procedure has been put in place. But, but I think we have to be honest about the costs associated with running elections, and we need to do a lot more work to educate people about those costs and be realistic about it. You know, one of the things at the federal level, you know, we consistently hear, uh, you know, we've consistently heard from election officials about the need for annual federal funding. Uh, I think that's a big deal. I think we need to tell that story and why it matters. One of the things that I've seen out of, you know, the original HAVA back in 2002, where, you know, there were billions of dollars sent, uh, you know, that a lot of the voting equipment around the country was replaced then, uh, and a lot of it started to age out at the same time. And you saw a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, a game of chicken between state, local, and federal officials about, you know, was there going to be more federal money? You know, do we have this game of brinksmanship where we let uh, equipment die or where we tape it together with duct tape uh, and get by hoping that there will be more federal money? there is a federal piece of elections. There are federal candidates on the ballot. Uh, it's now a national security issue. Uh, and, and you have foreign actors interfering with our elections. Uh, you know, there should be a consistent piece of federal funding. Uh, but state and locals are primarily responsible for running elections and are res primarily responsible for paying for it. But if we can get that consistent federal funding stream nailed down, and we can say, this is the federal portion, this is the money that's coming, uh, you know, then we can get past that game of chicken or brinksmanship or whatever it is and just uh, acknowledge what is needed to be invested in our elections uh, and, and hopefully move forward. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, Brianna made a great point, actually. And I totally agree with her that if it wasn't for that CTCL funding, I don't know what we would have done here. Um, 
it was it was a make it or break it kind of for us in, in many respects. And that story, uh, I mean, I was on a panel with, um, uh, you know, with CTCL and again, you know, we work with them, but, um, you know, that story needs to be told. Like, uh, I, you know, I was glad that we had uh, the $400 million in CARES Act money to distribute, uh, but, you know, it was made clear that that wasn't enough. And you hear, uh, you know, you hear the stories, you know, on the panel I was on with Tiana from CTCL at the Bipartisan Policy Center conference, you know, she was talking about what that money was spent for. And it was spent for the basics, you know, it was spent for disposable pens and PPE. And, uh, you know, that, uh, I mean, the fact that we got to that point is, is a failure of government. You know, that isn't something, uh, I'm glad the money was there, but that isn't something that we should be dependent on philanthropy for. We need to have plans in place and, and adequate resources to not be dependent on the charity of billionaires. Amen, brother. <laughs> so thanks everybody for listening to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. We uh, want to send a big thank you to Ben Hovland for being our guest today. And thank you to the whole US EAC for uh, assisting local election administrators. Please tune in next time for another great episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins.